The National Archives podcast series, Naval Medical Officers' Journals and the History of Medicine, by Daniel Guilfoyle. My name's Daniel Guilfoyle. I'm one of the colonial record specialists here at the uh, National Archives. By way of kind of apology, I guess, my background's very much in colonial history and colonial medical history, but I'm certainly a lot less knowledgeable about naval history. So I'm coming at this very much uh, from the angle of medical history, really. The plan is just to talk for about 10 or so minutes as a general introduction, and then to look at some transcriptions of records from the series ADM 101, and to do a quick gloss of them in a series. The Royal Naval Officers' Medical Journals are logbooks kept by naval surgeons in the course of their duties, in which they record the details of individual cases, as well as more general observations on the nature of disease, conditions on board ship, and the environment more generally. The earliest of these journals were written in the very early 18th century as a means of keeping a record relative to compensation claims for injury. The naval authorities strongly encouraged medical officers to keep these journals, and they were also regarded as a means by which an officer might gain advancements in his career. And as a result of this, we find that the majority of the journals were kept quite assiduously and contained a lot of detail. The nature of the journals evolved over the years, and for the 19th century we find quite lengthy and informative documents describing the experiences and opinions of surgeons in considerable detail. The journals held by the National Archives in the catalogue series ADM 101 date from between 1785 and 1963, and the series between 1793 and 1880 is particularly representative and contains over a thousand individual journals, though we should keep in mind that this in itself is a sample and it's not really a full set of journals, although I think statistically a thousand would be considered a very significant sample from which we can validly draw conclusions. And several years ago, staff of the National Archives identified the series as a key resource for medical historians, which had not really been accessed because it hadn't been catalogued and was in a kind of black box, really. National Archives applied to the Wellcome Trust for a grant to catalogue the series, and in 2007, the Wellcome Trust awarded us £90,000 to catalogue them. And the cataloguing was done very thoroughly. It goes down to the names of individuals in cases. So apart from medical historians, it should also be a very useful resource for family historians. And certainly if um, ancestors were perhaps in the Navy during the 19th century, or possibly transported to Australia, there's always the possibility that they may be mentioned, and in which case some detail of conditions on shipboard will be given as well. Well, what kind of information can we expect to find in these journals? The question is probably best answered by looking at the instructions which were provided by the Admiralty. And they divide the journals into three sections, the first of which is a comprehensive sick list, including medical notes for each case. And these vary considerably in the amount of detail that's given, but nevertheless each case is listed and some kind of details of treatments and symptoms are given. Secondly, general remarks including a description of the ship, conditions aboard and its movements and observations on disease, topography, climatology, natural history, and related topics. And these can be quite short, they can be quite discursive. Some of them run to the best part of three or four hundred pages with a great deal of detail. And we should also keep in mind, though, that these journals are not really just about medicine. They're much more wide-ranging than that. And finally, a nosological or classificatory table setting out the incidence of disease during the particular voyage. And um, interesting as well, because these tables change o over the years, and we get a kind of picture of how classification changed throughout the 19th century. The range of these journals across much of the 19th century 
is particularly fortuitous, because if modern uh, scientific medicine developed in the 18th century, it was probably, as Roy Porter's told us, bankrolled by the state in the 19th century. Britain saw large-scale public health interventions, in part results of John Snow's discoveries about cholera, and the seizure and antisepsis enable the transformation of surgery. If specific cures and prophylaxis for infectious diseases remained few, there were still very many emerging influences upon practice. ADM 101 accordingly contains an enormous amount of material on pretty much all aspects of medical practice and belief. Here, however, I want to look at two particular aspects. The first of which is a change, a very broad change over the century from a, a theory of disease causation which was really based in climate and environment to one which was primarily based in germ theory. And secondly, to look at the relationship between medicine and empire. Very broadly speaking, the period covered by these journals saw a movement from the theory that certain generalised conditions of disease, e.g. fevers, were caused by climatic or environmental conditions, to the theory that specific diseases were caused by living agents or germs which attacked and invaded the body. This was also overlapped by a tension between contagionist versions of disease, the idea that cholera was spread directly from person to person, to anti-contagionist versions, the idea that there was somehow broadcast in the environment. Some diseases, such as smallpox and syphilis, were long understood to be contagious, to spread from person to person. On the other hand, the malarial fevers of the tropics seemed non-specific. They broke out among many people at once and did not spread directly from one to another. These fevers were associated with damp and heat, and they seemed to arise from the miasmas which emanated from swamps and marshes and were exacerbated by seasonal heat. Medical advice to travellers was to avoid low-lying, damp holes, particularly in the summer heat, and to wear appropriate clothing to obviate the dangers posed by the tropical conditions. Increasingly in the second half of the 19th century, laboratory-based scientists sought germ causes of disease. And I suppose a major breakthrough or instance in this progress was Robert Koch, the German scientist. He, he isolated the tuberculosis bacillus in the early 1880s and reproduced this disease in a living creature, you know, kind of proving this germ transmission. And many diseases yielded afterwards, and by 1900, Ronald Ross had, had, had demonstrated the life cycle of the malarial parasite in a mosquito and human. And the ebb and flow of these, these theories are very much reflected in the journals. It's often been pointed out by historians that there was a close relation between medicine, science and empire, and the 19th century was for Britain generally a period of colonial expansion, whether informal or formal, and the Royal Navy ranged over the maritime world, and this reflected in the arrangements of the journals. And we can see that they, um, they reflect most parts of the globe, really, and um, so we find journals coming back from all of these regions. The fevers were formidable obstacles to the colonisation of the tropics, and medicine provided a means by which imperial powers were sometimes able to overcome constraints imposed by hostile environments. And the journals contain much information about strategies for coping with them, as well as theories and descriptions. But medicine was also a means through which colonial administrations came to know indigenous people and new environments. The journals contain descriptions of the practice of indigenous peoples and of topography, climate and natural history. So the naval surgeons were part of a process of imperial exploration and information gathering. So we find much more than accounts of disease here. There's much on the natural environment and indigenous life. Well, an awful lot's been written about the history of medicine and empire in the 19th century, so I guess we have to ask... How can these journals contribute to our knowledge of that and to the historiography more broadly? And I think that the answer to that really is, is in the nature of record keeping. 
It's been quite difficult to find large bodies of records kept by, for example, general practitioners. So though we can get a view from the top, from science, it's more difficult, I think, to get this view from the bottom up, as it were. Here we found a large and quite comprehensive body of evidence and opinion produced by naval surgeons in a structured, consistent and detailed way over a historically significant period. And naval historians were really at the front line of medical practice. They were dealing with large numbers of patients suffering from virtually any type of disease or injury, from familiar ailments to exotic tropical diseases, from minor injuries to conditions which required major surgery. And they were often working in isolation from medical institutions and from their colleagues more generally. ADM 101 thus provides a coherent view of the beliefs and practices of a body of rank-and-file medical practitioners during the late 18th and 19th centuries, a view of the metropolitan centre of medical science from the lowest ranks of the profession. So having said all that by way of introduction, I guess we should start looking at some of these, um, these records. And the first one is a transcription from, which was written by a surgeon called John Tweedy Todd. He'd been stationed in West Africa, and I'd seen quite a lot up there in the way of fevers and so forth. And they'd sailed down to Cape Town. This, this journal was written off Cape Town. Tweedy writes, Meteorological observations are useful principally as they regard the medical or agricultural history of a country. The divisions of climate, implied by the terms torrid, temperate and frigid, are too general to be useful in this investigation. Even the general relations which hold between latitude are so interrupted and modified by local cause that they are most certain only when they are least useful. The medical philosophy requires more shades of distinction and more accurate lines of difference. The mean temperature, its uniformity, its connections with seasons and months, its changes and the degree of change, the effects of fluctuations and the pressure and moisture of the atmosphere, the properties of fine and rainy weather and many other phenomena, the relations of climate to disease now offer themselves. And Tweedy proceeds then to drop a detailed chart of climatic conditions and tries to relate them to the various grades of fever which he's, he's viewed in West Africa. And this is quite an early one. It's written in 1814. And we can see at this stage, you know, climate is, pla is placed completely at the centre of explanations about disease. And diseases are seen as being peculiar to the locale. The other thing which I found interesting about this particular record is that Tweedy uh, refers to himself as a medical philosopher. So I think, it's, I think it's important that we note that doctors perceive themselves in this way. They don't merely perceive themselves as passing on information or treatments from authorities you know, to the patient. They see themselves as people who are generating knowledge about disease and the environment. One of the diseases which was frequently encountered by medics in the West Indies and in West Africa was yellow fever. And although most fevers are referred to in a kind of general way, uh, from the 18th century, yellow fever always appears as a very specific disease. It's always quite clearly defined as yellow fever. And this is really because of the very distinctive symptoms uh, of the disease. In fact, yellow fever is actually a mosquito-borne viral disease. And the possibility of, of mosquito transmission was first raised by medical people in, in the southern states of America very early on in the 19th century. Although it was only in the 1880s that the, um, the theory was taken up more seriously by a Havana doctor called Carlos Finley. And slightly later again in the very late 19th century during the Spanish-American um, War, American troops suffered very badly from this disease and it was investigated more thoroughly. So you know, mosquitoes emerge as, the, as, the, as a vector by the end of the century. But in these records, so we, don't, we don't really find any mention of, of insect transmission at all, as, as far as I can see. But um, 
On the next slide, which is written by someone called James Farrelly in the 1850s, he had been stationed off Sierra Leone. This is written at Ascension Island in the South Atlantic. It's a long way from Africa, actually, and it's curious that the yellow fever outbreak should have occurred so late after leaving. But at the time of writing this journal, they were quarantined outside of Ascension Island until the outbreak disappeared. And he gives a description of the uh, symptoms. This awful fever was generally issued in by the following symptoms, severe frontal headache and pain in the eyeballs, aching pain in the back and lower extremities, the eyes bright, resembling a person who has been crying, sometimes the patient's actually crying and greatly excited and alarmed. About the fourth day, there was a slight yellowishness of the conjunctiva and the skin generally, the pulse becoming more feeble, an accumulation of black solids on teeth and lips, tongue dry and black, hiccups of the most disturbing nature, vomiting of liquid sometimes of an inky black colour resembling petroleum, frequent attempts to get out of hammocks, involuntary discharge of faeces, total loss of power, inability to swallow, tremulous motion of the lips and tongue, and at times the whole body, cold extremities and convulsion proceeding to fatal termination. And it's a, it's a very graphic description, isn't it? It's, it's, got, it's got an almost kind of um, literary quality to it. I, I was reminded of some of the writings of Edgar Allan Poe or something like that, perhaps. But it, it does show, I think, the importance of visible symptoms to diagnosis and how yellow fever was recognised as, as a specific disease so early, as opposed to the other kinds of fevers we'll be uh, discussing. I also think it shows a, a very high degree of subjectivity of description, which kind of fades away somewhat as the, as the century goes on. And towards the century, we tend to find rather more clinical, in a metaphorical sense, you know, descriptions of, of these diseases. Farrelly goes on to speculate about the causes of yellow fever. With regard to the origin of this vital fever, I'm of the opinion that it arose out of Sierra Leone from the dry season being unusually hot, long, I should say, accompanied by instances of intensely and oppressively hot, sultry months, followed after heavy night dews. Soon after, the rainy season set in with tornadoes. The rains mixing with the filth of the huts of the black population and the intensely hot air causing malarial vapour to rise from them and to disseminate its fatal influence over the whole population, both black and white. I think it highly probable the disease might be blown out on the town by the tornadoes, bringing with them malaria from the interior of Africa caused by decomposing putrid animals and vegetable matter. And there's, there's quite a lot in, in this one. Again, we see the very clear linkage of disease with, with climate and climatic conditions. Another interesting thing about him is that the use of the word malaria. And the word is used, but I think it's used in this case in the sense of bad air or unhealthy air. We're not using malaria here in the modern sense of a particular disease. It's a word that is in use throughout the 19th century, but the meaning is rather different from, from ours. There's also this kind of metaphorical idea of the diseased heart of Africa. You know, the, the interior of Africa is, is full of decomposing putrid animals and so forth. And there's also um, a distinctly racist um, element to this discourse. He, he, he talks specifically about the filth of huts of the black population. And we know from the work of various historians that patterns of settlement in West Africa were along segregationist lines. And again, it's interesting, I think, to trace these segregationist ideas in the medical discourse. However, this is mere conjecture. As to the cause of disease, HMS Trident, their difference of opinion Something that the crew brought it on board after they had been sleeping on shore and then slept on the lower deck. Others that had spread its deadly influence for some distance around the city of Sierra Leone and the HMS Trident was within the circle of the infectious miasma. But as it is a confirmed case and it being desirable to have all such cases separated from the portions of the crew, 
In other words, they're um, using a technique of quarantine here to try to prevent the spread of yellow fever. They, they don't really be believe it is contagious, but they nevertheless ad adopt that policy. And it reflects, I think, the debates between the contagionists and anti-contagionists in the mid-19th century. It's also worth noting that the ship was quarantined, and this was the usual practice at side ports where yellow fever had broken out on board a ship. This is from round about the same period. Again, this one's off the west coast of Africa. S. Wells is the surgeon who's writing this. It's interesting to note that not only was the percentage of attacks among the Marines much greater than that among the officers or the seamen, but mortality was greater in proportion to strength, being 21 among the Marines to 14 among the seamen and three among the officers. But it will be seen that the percentage of deaths to attacks was greatest among the seamen, being 44 to 35 Marines and 12 officers. I cannot consider the disease was introduced by contagion. Again, there's a reference to the ideas of contagion. Anti -con he's an anti-contagionist, obviously. Interesting to see this kind of um, quantitative mythology creeping in here, which becomes more important as the century wears on. And he's obviously using a very basic statistical technique to, to try and work out if, if some people suffered from the disease less than others. And officers were seen to suffer less than other people. And this could have been because of nutrition. It could have been because they, they slept within cabins. Um, so um, the surgeon offers some speculation as to why this should be, why there should be this variation. He carries on, I believe it to be acknowledged that by authorities, whether contagious or otherwise, that a hot and humid atmosphere, more especially if stagnant from want of wind or from defective ventilation, tends greatly to the extension and increase of virulence of fever, so that whether the germ be introduced through the medium of contagion or called into existence by peculiar atmospheric influences modified by local causes, this hot, humid and stagnant atmosphere, that in which this germ thrives and acquires increased force and virulence. Well, I included this bit, I think, because he does mention germ theory in a way. It's, again, probably not quite in a way we'd mean it. But nevertheless, the terms used, and I think it shows a gradual permeation of medical thought by germ theory. Although he sees the germ as somehow arising spontaneously, perhaps out of the conditions of uh, heat and humidity. I feel that all one can hope to do is to endeavour to profit by all the circumstances which come under one's notice in each case of this disease by studying the disease as to its type and details with all collateral evidence. These are then to be carefully weighed and reasoned on so as to form an opinion based on one's own experiences without being biased by the railings of controversialists. And this is a specific um, reference to various arguments about yellow fever which were at that time taking place in the laboratories of Paris and uh, medical schools in Paris and, and Berlin and um, there might be a degree of nationalism in this you know but but he's um, averring his, his own power to form his own opinions about this and that he, he thinks that one should form one's own conclusions about these diseases as opposed to it taking for granted what the scientists are, are saying in, in the metropolises. And that's all on yellow fever for now. The next lot of slides really concern fevers more generally and British medical men were familiar with fevers and agues and they were a serious prob problem on marshy ground in the south of England at least since the be beginning of um, the early 19th century and we know that forms of malaria were say present in Romney marshes. They characterised them according to patterns with which they occurred for example we get intermittent fevers which came and went on different days, remittent fevers which came and went um, on the same day tertians and quartan fevers where the patterns repeated over a given number of days. But in the tropics, these fevers were characterised by a much higher degree of severity and they were, they were very fatal often to Europeans in the tropics and they presented a serious problem to colonisation. 
And such was the, the virulence of thieves in West Africa, for example, that the region became known as the white man's grave during the early 19th century. As we said before, medics accounted for disease in terms of environmental conditions caused by breathing in the miasmas and, and malaria, or bad air, which arose from swamps and rotting vegetation. Quinine was, was an effective prophylactic and had been around for a long time. But we first see it used um, systematically by the British during the 1850s. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. But the juice was instrumental, I think, in cutting the, the mortality rate from malaria and certainly enabled, I think, the colonisation of West Africa from, say, the 1860s onwards. Towards the end of the 19th century, malaria tends to emerge as a more specific disease. And we know that by 1900, um, Ronald Ross had, had more or less worked out the life cycle of the parasite plasmodium in the mosquito and in the human host. This next slide is 1930. It was written at Fernando Po, which is now the island of Bioko off Equatorial Guinea. It was an, an old Portuguese colony, but the, um, the British had established a base there with um, a military hospital. And they were using it to, to police the slave trade, basically, which had been outlawed, but nevertheless was, was continuing to some extent. Stuart writes, intermittent fever sometimes degenerated into remittance and the conversion of remittent fever with intermittent is still more common. From that fact, it seems fair to infer that remittent intermittent fever originates in a common cause and the only difference in the intensity with which they attack the individual. The African mechanics and liberated Africans suffered considerably from fever last year. The natives, I believe, are not very subject to it. These people cover the body with palm oil made into consistency for that purpose by mixing with clay or earth. They also adopt the common practice in this part of Africa of burning fires in the night. They sleep on short hard boards placed on the ground, parallel with each other and having a fire between them. Fernando Po had been regarded as a relatively healthy place and, and Stuart was surprised when he arrived there to find the Europeans who were stationed there were, were largely sick with fever. It's an interesting one because it shows an openness to trying to observe what Africans were doing and there's this quite vivid description here. Afterwards, Stuart tried the, um, the measure of, of lighting um, stoves within the sick rooms to see if that would make any difference. Um, although it didn't, it shows an openness, I think, to seeing how indigenous peoples dealt with these problems. This is the first Niger expedition of 1841. It was an anti-slavery exhibition, uh, expedition, I should say. Um, the slave trade had been continuing in spite of the abolition of slavery in the 1830s. The expedition was to go up, up, up the Niger and convince people up there that the practice should come to an end. The Niger expedition of 1841 was, was really severely affected by food, and a third of, of the people who were on it are supposed to have died. This is um, the surgeon J.O. McWilliam describing the outbreak of fever. Tornadoes generally come on the evening, the weather was close and sultry, and the atmosphere was in a state of complete stagnation. The patient usually experienced the sensation of coldness and would have exposed himself to the rays of the sun for warmth. He would shortly express a wish to lie down and would complain somewhat suddenly of increase of headache, intense heat of skin, intolerable nausea, headache was in some cases a prominent symptom at this stage, and the feeling was that of a tight gird around the temple. The eye was frequently suffused and looked wild. He continues, This stage in general is marked by a subsistence of febrile action in three to six hours. On all events, the symptoms, if they continued beyond the latter periods, became much mitigated. This seemingly favourable change did not last for the symptoms in from 8 to 12 hours occasionally. The respite continued to 48 hours. 
The attacks did not seem to observe any law of periodicity. They came on at all hours of the day and night and were most irregular in their time of return. Well, I'm not a doctor, but to me this sounds like um, it was almost certainly an outbreak of malaria and um, it basically brought the expedition to a standstill. Interesting in the way um, the disease is described in terms of these periods of fever and how one form varied to another form. There's always a, a distinction between, drawn between intermittent, where the fever went away for a few days, and remittent, where the rise and falls of temperature were on the same day. And there's a lot of debate about whether they're really the same disease or, or different diseases. In this one, he, he talks about um, the kind of rate of incidence of, of this malaria. He also mentioned that Commander Fishbourne was affected by the remittent in a comparatively mild form but he was, he was many months afterwards violently visited by intermittent as, as anyone in the expedition. And this is obviously a, a recurrence of malaria away from the scene. And um, McWilliam carries on to um, describe his own case. Nearly 12 months after recovery from remittance and after about eight months of freedom from intermittent, I was three days confined to bed with the last complaint during the passage to in England, just as we were getting into cold weather. It appears, therefore, that after remittance, a person is long liable to intermittence, and further that intermittence and remittance are produced by the same cause in different degrees of intensity. While the system is in this condition of susceptibility, a second attack of remittance will certainly follow exposure to malaria, while a return of intermittent may be induced even in a healthy district by a slight indiscretion in diet or by sudden changes in the condition of the atmosphere. Again, he, he describes how this disease could come and go, the different forms, where they can be distinguished. He does again use the word malaria very specifically here, but I, again, I, I don't feel we can say that he is referring to it as a, as a specific disease. Again, I think he means exposure to, to kind of bad air or humid conditions. He speculates more generally, few subjects in medical philosophy have been investigated with less satisfactory results than the cause of these fevers, which in intertropical countries are the special bane of European life. It seems to admit of no doubt that the domain of the worst forms of intermittence and remittance is to be found in the countries overspread with marshes, where muddy deposits, jungles, large water pools, with or without luxuriant vegetation, subject to periodic inundation, high degree of atmospheric temperature. In consequence of the unusually rapid destruction of the copper of ships employed blockading the rivers on the west coast of Africa, attention was drawn to the subject in Sir William Barrett caused several samples which were taken by mid at various distances from the mouth within the river Bonny to be analysed. And besides various proportions of oceanic salts, they were found to contain a quantity of sulfuretted hydrogen. McWilliam theorises that sulfuretted hydrogen, you know, which is really marsh gas, I suppose, the kind of rotten egg smell, is the cause of these fevers. And there's a, there's a whole series of experiments to detect the amount of hydrogen sulphide in the atmosphere. And great attention is paid to the ventilation of ships as a possible means of preventing these outbreaks. And a lot of interesting drawings. I've cheated a bit, actually, because this isn't from, from the expedition, though there's some good drawings there. This is a slightly later one, but it had already been copied and turned to an image, so I thought I'd use it. Beginning to have quite elaborate um, drawings of a setup on board ship and diagrams of how they were ventilated. And much attention is, is paid to ventilation as, as part of the whole business of tropical hygiene. But again, it's a, it's a good example of the kinds of things we find in these journals. Again, they're not straightforward medical accounts. We do find these, um, these kinds of records there too. Now we're moving on to 1875. Quite a lot happened by then in terms of the control of malaria. In um, 1854, the, the fourth expedition to the Niger, 
Dr. William Blakey experimented with the systematic use of quinine and um, greatly reduced the, uh, the rate of fever because of that. And that was a real turning point. And we found evidence in this account of the Congo expedition. Now, the Congo expedition was a rather different beast from the Niger expedition. It was really a punitive expedition against Africans who used to um, take control of trading ships if they moored against the islands in the, in the mouth of the Congo. And he describes the kind of techniques they used to, to overcome fevers. This is John Neeson Stone. The selection of the month of September for the expedition secured perhaps the best period of the year. The rains which ended about the middle of April, having then ceased for more than four months. Ample time had elapsed to complete the decomposition and evolution of malaria. And as the wet season does not commence again until November, a period of two months was available, should any unforeseen events have protracted the stay of the squadron. When a large number of officers and men had to sleep on the upper deck of any vessel, awnings with curtains were always spread, and care was taken to see that all wet cloths were changed or dried. So, there's, you know, you can see there's a kind of strategy to deal with fevers emerging here. They've selected a particular time of the year when they, they thought they were safest. There's no more sleeping on board the open decks of, of the vessel. There's no mention of mosquito transmission, but there's this, a distinct realisation that you, you have to keep as a night air. Sleep indoors or, or use the equipment, I suppose, of awnings and curtains, which might be like mosquito nets. It carries on. This is about alcohol. During the late expedition, the amount of spirits issued to each individual, including the extra allowance, was a five and a half ounce daily, half an ounce with Queener, the remaining five ounces being given at noon, the rest at 7pm, the liquor being ordinary navy rum of good quality. I've, I've really included this because these journals are absolutely suffused with discussion about the, the medical use of alcohol, which is, you know, kind of used almost as a panacea for just about everything. But there are also um, arguments against it which crop up, and, and here um, Stone dis discusses the use of specific types of alcohol. You know, it would be bad, to, for example, to give Arak, which is a coarse inflammatory spirit, but it, it's okay to use rum, which is the right sort of stuff. I did check out how much five ounces is. I, be I believe it's a, a quarter of a, a, an imperial pint, so it's a decent bit, but it, it wouldn't be enough, I don't think, to, to induce um, drunkenness or, or anything like that. He discusses the use of quinine. Four grains of sulphate of quinine with four drops of dilute sulfuric acid and half an ounce of water and half an ounce rum was issued to each individual at 6.20 during the operations. The prophylactic effect of quinine in the present instance was seen so far to have been well established judging from the results. For up to the time of leaving the river, in which most of the ships had been nearly a month together, but two or three cases of fever had evidenced themselves there were over a thousand people exposed to malarial influence. 30 years ago, a third of the people on these expeditions could be expected to be killed by malaria. But now the, the problem would seem to be more or less overcome. And quinine has, has a central place in that, and its use is much discussed throughout the journals. This is from around the same period. I think this is interesting because we see that the use of the clinical thermometer, I think it was um, introduced in the 1850s, is in use here. And well, before we had these qualitative descriptions of remittance and intermittent fever, here we have something which is really quantitative. You know, we see it on the first couple of days, this chap has a fever around about 104, certainly a dangerous fever, which falls away gradually, and then it's back up to 105. So again, it's what people would have called in those, in those days intermittent fever. But it's a new technique for recording it, and it's evidence that emerging technology was being taken up in the Navy. Here's something which is probably a, a little bit less well-known. Yours. Yours is um, a disease, it's a tropical disease, it's associated with the tropics. It's closely related to syphilis. 
It's caused by um, a subspecies of, of the Trepanoma pallidum. But it's not, it's not really a sexually transmitted disease. It's really spread from open lesions on the body if they come in contact with broken skin. Although it could also be spread during sexual intercourse. But the point about it in the 19th century is that medics did tend to think of it as a sexually transmitted disease. So a discourse about it tends to be more with a kind of moralising um, element. This is John O'Neill. He's off Cape Castle Roads. That's quite close to Accra in modern-day Ghana. He writes, Our little gunboat was stationed at the time at Cape Coast Castle Roads, and the surf so huge that it was with considerable trepidation that I took my valuable microscope on shore, and having done so, I had to send out messengers to induce some afflicted individual to submit himself to examination for a small sum of money. So we've got this picture of someone who's carrying this extremely valuable piece of equipment. And when he gets there, he's, he's, he's gone ashore. We mustn't imagine these records are all to do with ships. They're, they're often to do with conditions onshore as well. And his technique for, for getting patients is, is to pay them some money to, to submit to examination. Frequently during a stroll on shore, I've seen as many as 10 youths with the disease bathing in the filthy pools or wandering about the streets. The primitive nature of their attire permitting the free inspection of the greater portions of their bodies, old and young, seem to be indiscriminately affected though the loose garments worn by the adults would induce a casual observer to believe it was only the youthful who suffered. And I, th I think this kind of moralising um, element is quite clear here. He's talking about scantily clad people bathing together. The kind of racist discourse, I think, emerges there too. Here's an interesting one, and we should also note that the journals contain quite a few of these kind of watercolour drawings and sketches. The surgeons would have trained in drawing the anatomy, and you can see this one's extremely skillful. For example, you know, the details of, of the shirt are, are very well done. It's a watercolour sketch of um, lesions of, of yours on the arm, obviously. O'Neill ob obtains smears from these lesions and examines them through the microscope. He says, in several sections of the mature tubercles were found orange, reddish, elongated bodies, three eight hundredths of an inch long and one two thousand of an inch wide, tapering to a point at one end while the other end, which is of a slightly flattened form, shows a dark triangular patch, which appears to be the interior darker portion of the body, giving the whole the semblance of a conical pouch. The body is not common, and they are totally devoid of motion, and I can express no opinion as to the part they play in the disease, only feeling certain that they are found in the tubercle and have not accidentally been placed beneath the microscope. And he gives us a drawing of them. And those, um, those longish, yellowish bodies are, are, um, are what he's talking about, also drawings of cells and, and so forth uh, lying next to them. But the key thing about this is that the emerging science of bacteriology, which emerged, emerged in Paris and Berlin, is now to be found in, among the naval surgeons. It's a very good example of, um, of its diffusion. And I'd certainly be very interested in, in, in tracing other, other material of this, of this kind. Interesting, too, that he, he doesn't speculate too much about whether these are the causes of yours or not. We find particularly after the um, 1880s when, after say Cox discoveries about the tubercle bacillus and also Pasteur's um, development of the first effective vaccines, doctors are, are, are much more inclined to make outrageous claims for these kinds of uh, discoveries, you know, claiming we've now, we've now found the cause and by modifying these creatures we can produce an effective vaccine, which would have been a passport of course to, to medical fame. Here Again, he, he's speaking to African people and he, he's asking them what they do about cases of yours and this is what they tell him. Long-continued fasting, violent purging, rubbing of the tubercle till they bleed freely, 
thus causing much pain and then rubbing in freely unstaked lime. After this, the sores were poulticed with some boiled herbs, which in themselves are highly acrid and irritating. This is done to about seven or eight parts of the body, and the agony of the patient endures must be something appalling. And under this procedure, the strongest men have shrieked and yelled and even wept like children. But I, have, I suppose we have to keep in mind a case like this, that um, is actually paying people to tell him these things. And, um, well, I don't know, but I'd, I'd be inclined to take this with a pinch of salt and, and maybe think the patients were telling um, O'Neill something um, which, which he'd like to have heard. Anyway, it's a kind of note of caution, I suppose, about taking all this too much at face value. Just a very quick couple of records, which are to do with empire and exploration. We ha again, as we said earlier, um, the process of empire very much about the acquisition of knowledge and its use in sometimes, you know, gaining control over the environment or, or possibly of controlling the indigenous population. And medical surgeons are always very keen to note things about the natural environment. And I, I just um, included this one because it's got a, also got quite a nice watercolour. But he gives he gives the detailed. Um, Use the Linnaean system, this is in the East China Sea, of, of a, a species of, of water snake, and um, gives a thorough going um, description, concludes that this is probably a poisonous snake, which might be a valuable piece of information, possibly for colonists. Again, a very skilled watercolour, and there are, qu there are quite a few of these in this series. Again, moving, moving back to the Congo expedition, again, we just to make the point that um, we shouldn't really think of these being as kind of purely medical journals. And he gives an account of why, why this expedition took place. The people inhabiting the islands and districts lately visited, although apparently of honest purposes, living by agriculture and fishing, still entertain some peculiar views on the subject of merchant vessels in the waters. So long as the ship continues to float and remains under the control of her captain and crew, no idea of molesting her is entertained, but the moment she goes ashore or becomes disabled or unmanageable, she is considered the property of the bushmen, who do not hesitate to enforce the supposed right by violence and bloodshed. The interests of the European traders residents in the Congo were peculiarly compromised. The practice of the natives regarding stranded trading vessels could, of course, damage them. But on the other hand, the only means of retribution which our armed forces could employ, namely the destruction of native property, was equally ruinous as it included the demolition of native articles of barter and so interrupted trade. The merchants accordingly held aloof in the matter, more particularly as they had some reason to dread the vengeance of the bushmen on the departure of the squadron. So uh, it, it does tell us something about the politics of the situation and the, and the motives for this expedition. So again, we've got to see them in political context, and they do often contain this kind of political message. And um, in the next paragraph, the object of the expedition being to inflict a severe and lasting lesson on the Congo men by the destruction of life and property, and thereby to prevent any repetition of former outrages. Extensive measures were taken to render the force at the disposal of Sir William Hewitt thoroughly effective for the purpose of, and thus preclude the possibility of much opposition and consequent loss of life on our side. So here we see medicine is, is directly linked to the um, aims of empire, and we see in a very direct sense that, that it is a, an agent of empire in ensuring that conditions are, are made good for the expedition to take place. We also find quite a lot of comments about um, the African way of life, and just to read this one out. The villagers nearest the water are usually quite hidden from view by intervening bush and are sometimes approached from the waterside by a small opening scarcely visible to the unpractised eye in the thick covers. The habitation is then reached to a tortuous path wide enough for one person and the villagers are always situated in a clearing from a couple of hundred yards to perhaps half a mile in extent, the confines of the enclosure being the thick forest. 
In these clearings, they grow portions of their crops. You proceed to the next through a narrow passage in the thicket in the same way as the first was approached from the water. In a few localities, however, the country is naturally more open, as in the neighbourhood of Chango, where large quantities of crops, chiefly sweet potatoes, were grown. And uh, I, think, I think I'll finish there. But again, um, you can see this is part of the, this kind of information gathering process, the specific information about how Africans live there. So again, it shows the wide-ranging interests, I think, of, of the naval surgeons. Thanks. This event was recorded live on the 18th of November 2010 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>